Sorry I'm late. We just had to put a family back together. Okay, <laughs> Romans. Please turn to Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16. Now, this is the second addendum to Romans. I thought it wise not only to do a two-part addendum, this is the second part, to our Romans the Epistle series, but also let this be a bridge to our next increment of teaching, which we're going to, I believe, make some serious advances together as a congregation toward a graced imitation of the uncreated life of God and uncreated love of God and toward a participation in his divine goodness, which he is about to grace us with, I'm quite certain. So addendum regarding Romans 16, 25 to 27. And I think this little doxology, as it's called, an attribution of glory to God, belongs not only over Romans, but over all of Paul's epistles, that we are sure that at one time or another they were collected, perhaps by Paul himself. And this doxology should be written over all of them. Romans chapter 16 and verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, we studied what that meant, means to preserve in the agona of the class of the ages, which we're all enduring, to strengthen you. By my gospel, Paul says, by the proclamation of Jesus Christ, according to the apocalypse or the stunning revelation of a mystery, kept silent for ages of time gone by, but is now manifested through the writings of the prophets and made known to all the nations by command of the eternal God to bring about the allegiance of faith to the only wise God. That will be the title of our closing up of Romans with the second addendum and our bridge to somewhere very special, a new theological contribution to the only wise God through Jesus Christ be glory for the ages to come. Amen. The only wise God chose to make a world in which evil was permitted, knowing that the good that comes from the transformation of evil is a greater good than would be if he had made a world in which evil was not permitted. God's wisdom ordained and decreed that everything be gathered together in a perfectly ordered universe in Christ, his son. What is wisdom ordained? His goodness willed to be done. Because love wills the good for those whom it loves. God, who is love, willed the supreme good for the creation which he loves with an astonishing and unparalleled kind of love. But the manifold wisdom of God, that's his incredibly complex and variegated wisdom infallibly knows his goodness effectively chooses, efficaciously chooses, brings about, and his power irresistibly implements. I'll say that again because this is theological, but our theology is going to be different. We're not just going to be doing but living this theology in a way that is remarkable. And I only became very assured of that even this morning. What the manifold wisdom of God, Ephesians 3.10, if you want references, when I print this out, it'll have many references. 
The goodness of God efficaciously chooses and the power of God irresistibly implements. Jeremiah 32, 19 comes to mind. And he implements it through the mediation of Jesus Christ, a divine person. His son, the father's son, the eternal son of God, through incarnation, becoming flesh, assumed a human nature and became obedient even to the extent of death on the cross in order to put away sin by becoming both priest and offering for sin. Hebrews 9, 14, 26 come to mind. The supreme good for all of creation is to participate in the divine goodness. It's, an, it's a created participation in an uncreated good. It's like a created participation in uncreated light. Jesus Christ is the light that enlightens everyone coming into the world. John 1, 9. That's a universal statement of God's enlightening love. The Lagos, the eternal word, enlightens every person coming into the world. And he who came into the world is the light of the world. In John eight twelve. The supreme good for all of creation is to participate in the divine goodness. This is the divinely intended end. By end, I mean objective. The scripture uses the word telos. End, objective, or goal of redemption. The goodness of God, and God alone, is good as to essence. The goodness of God being participated in by all things and all creatures in all of their times is the goal of redemption. It is described as God being all in all. In 1 Corinthians 15, 28. The first resolve or resolution of the only wise God is that he be all in all. That his goodness be participated in by all things that he intended to bring into being, especially rational beings. This purpose was proposed in God's wisdom and goodness and power. Again, it was proposed in his wisdom. then willed by his goodness, then implemented in his irresistible power. God's wisdom, God's goodness, God's power are all enveloped in his love. They can be descriptors of his love, for God's love is wise, God's love is good, God's love is all-powerful. God willed, and this explains so much as to why things are. God willed a world in which good would come out of evil. Evil that God did not will, but did permit. The only wise God knew in his infinite wisdom that the good that would result from the transformation of evil would be a far greater good than merely created good. The cross of Jesus Christ, God's son, is the means God chose in his infinite wisdom to transform evil into the supreme good. 
It would be one thing to allow the possibility of evil, which in itself is a non-existent, non-created thing. It would be one thing, and this is how I used to view it. It would be one thing to allow the possibility of evil to come about in order to destroy it forever. That would be a good plan, not the best plan. Only the wise God, however, would permit evil to come about to transform it forever into the highest possible good for the objects of his love. Only God is wise like that. God wills the good to those whom he loves. And oh, how he loves you. God wills the good to those whom he loves. But because God's love is unrestricted, unparalleled, almost unthinkable, inconceivable, behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called sons of God. And that's what we are. We can't even imagine what we shall be. But we do know this when we see him in that beatific vision in the light of glory. We shall be like him because we will have entered into a full graced imitation of him, not a parroted imitation, a graced imitation, which is a participation in his love, his life, his light, his truth, his grace. Because God wills the ultimate good because of his unrestricted love. He did something about it. The supreme good is not goodness that comes from creation per se. And we know this from Genesis. You have six or seven times God does something in one day. What is produced through his creative work, he says, he calls it good. He calls it good. He calls it good. And then when it's all done, he surveys it in Genesis one thirty one. says it's very good. It's very good. But it's not the supreme good. That is brought about by the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why I call it instauration, a creation rooted in the love of God expressed in the cross of Christ. And that'll be one of the leading doctrines of our upcoming Theologica Crucis, Theology of the Cross, as Luther called it in the Latin. It's simply called the Word of the Cross or the Logos of the Cross by Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.18. The supreme good is not goodness that comes from creation per se, but it comes from God who calls out of the non-created being that is evil, a good that can only be described as a created participation and a graced imitation of the uncreated good, which is God's goodness. Again, the only wise God. This is, again, these things are going to be fanned out. I'm pulling out of a treasure chest today things for you, some old, some new because I'm a scribe of the kingdom of the heavens in Matthew 13, 52. And so are you. The scribe of the kingdom of heavens pulls out of a treasure chest some old things, and we're going to see some old things come into our new theological increment and some new things, shockingly new, shockingly new in a good way. The only wise God ordained that a creation in which evil was permitted would result in this end better than in a creation where evil was not permitted. Let's call in some of the greats. I don't think Augustine was great in his treatment of hell. He thought the majority of humanity was going to end up in eternal hellfire. But Augustine, Augie, I call him in my study for abbreviation, had some pretty good ideas before he got a little warped on that cause. And in his book called The Enchiridion, 
He said, God judged it better to draw good out of evils than not to allow evils to exist. Aquinas put it this way. Thomas Aquinas, eight or nine hundred years later, said this. God neither wills that evils occur, nor wills that evils not occur, but he wills to permit evils to occur, and this is good. Thomas Aquinas, bullied in his early years in school as called the dumb ox, but I read his Summa Theologica, not so dumb. Maybe his bullies were. Again, I'll say this. He put it this way. God neither wills that evils occur, nor wills that evils not occur, but he wills to permit evils to occur, and this is good. In regard to this, Hosea 13.9 is referenced. There the proper translation says, as Yahweh speaks through the prophet to Israel, Your downfall is your own doing, Israel. But the second half of that verse, not as often referenced, Yahweh says this, but in me is your help. God in no way willed culpable evil, that is evil that is done willfully by creatures. He did permit it because in his wisdom he knew That the goodness, his goodness, could only be participated in to the maximum degree by his created beings. By creating a world in which evil was permitted and then transformed into an enduring supreme good. And here's a thesis for you. Here's a thesis. Put it all in bold in my writing here. God ordained that the way of the cross would be how evil would be transformed into a supreme good. God's infinite goodness would be communicated through a slaughtered lamb. John audaciously refers to him as the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. In John... In Revelation 13.8, God's infinite goodness would be communicated through a slaughtered lamb who would then be raised not only for life or to life for himself, but raised to be a life-giving spirit to communicate life to all of creation in all of its times. The first man was a living soul. That man lived for himself, to himself. The second man, the Lord from heaven, became a life-giving spirit. In John 6.63, it's striking. He said, the words that I'm speaking to you, they are spirit and life. And when he asked Peter, are you going to go too? Because so many went away from him when he developed some new doctrine some shocking new advance. Many went away and followed him no more. So all preachers who teach and who break the bonds of conventionality and denominational rigor mortis should take heart. Many went back and followed him no more. Jesus said to Peter and the others who were just hanging around, Aren't you going to go too? See, he wasn't too insecure. Most pastors would say, please don't go. He said, aren't you going? Peter gave the best possible answer. You have the words of eternal life. Where would we go? To whom would we go? Who else but Jesus Christ is the living eternal word and who speaks the word? That is eternal, eternal life. Communicates eternal life with this very word. Amazing. So, God's infinite goodness 
was to be communicated through a slaughtered lamb who would be raised not only to life for himself. He said, I have the power to lay my life down and to take it back again. But not just for myself, he said, the bread that comes down from heaven is my flesh, which is food for the world. Life for the world. When he was raised up, it was to be a life-giving spirit for the world. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Not accounting their sins to them. For he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the very righteousness of God in him. This life is eternal life. The gift of God mediated through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 6.23. It is a participation of the creation, especially the rational beings in creation called humans, in uncreated life. And it's also a graced imitation. Get ready to receive that phrase frequently. A graced imitation. Which takes away the notion of a mimicry of God. Or what would Jesus do? Let me do it in the energy of my flesh. What would Jesus do? A, A graced participation is when we assent to and receive an unparalleled otherworldly love, and then love, not with our own love, but with that love. As the Holy Spirit pours that love out in our hearts. That's a graced imitation by a new creation of the God who is love. Eternal life, then, is a participation of the creation in uncreated life, and a graced imitation by a new creation Of the God who is love. The good which God brought into existence. Out of the evil that he permitted. Far exceeds the good. That would not come out of evil. This helps us to understand the cross. The evil that was not willed but permitted of the high priests, of Caiaphas, of Pontius Pilate, of Judas Iscariot, of the mobs who called for his crucifixion. God did not will that culpable evil but permitted it in order to bring out of that evil a goodness that is so indescribable, so ineffable. God didn't just want to create us and elevate us to a really good thing. God wanted to create us And have us participate in his uncreated goodness. And have an imitation, a graced imitation of his love toward one another. In a mutual fellowship of self-giving love. Just like happens in the Trinity. That they may be one. As we are one. In a fellowship of ineffable, indescribable, unparalleled, self-giving love. Mutual love. You want to know what the new creation is going to be? That's what it's going to be. So. The good that comes out of evil is created. By the God who is goodness. By reason of his essence. He makes things that don't exist and calls them into existence. Evil did not exist as a creation of God. It was a non-created possibility. God then brought out of that non-created possibility a divine good. That's why when we are in a graced imitation of God, and be imitators of God is what we're commanded in Ephesians 5.1. That's going to be the main command that's over us in the next few years. Be imitators of God. 
As imitators of God, we are not overcome by evil, but we overcome evil by the ultimate good. And it's a graced imitation because it's loving not with our own love, but with God's love. Loving ourselves not with our own love, that would be narcissism. Loving ourselves with God's love, that would be Christianity. So we could say that God resolved to create the heavens and the earth in Christ, who is the image of God. That word is often used in theology in the Latin, imago dei, imago dei, the image of God. Christ is the image of God in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. He is the image of God in Colossians 1.15. Let us make mankind, all of humankind, in our own image. Christ is our own image. Let's make everybody in Christ. Imago Dei. There's something related to that though. And I'm giving you this in the Latin. Because it's imitatio Dei. Same root word. Same kind of root word. Imitatio Dei. Is when. We express the image of God in a graced imitation. We love as he loved. But it's because we love with his love, not our own. We love ourselves with his love, not our own. And because we love ourselves with his love, not our own, we love one another. We love others as we love ourselves. We love God with his own self-gift of his own love. These will be fanned out. They're too great to explain in one session, one Sunday morning. So we could say that God first resolved to create the heavens and the earth and all of creation in Christ, who is the imago dei, the image of God. Now, God, who was pleased to dwell, to reside in his son. Whom he calls the son of his love. The son of his eternal begetting. God who was pleased to dwell in the son of his love. Who from eternity was always pleased to do so. Remained pleased to dwell in his son. When and after his son became flesh. God was in Christ. My father is in me. And the day will come when it will be you in me, I in you, and we in my father. John 14, 20. So God who is pleased to dwell in the son of his love and who was from eternity pleased and delighted to do so. Remain pleased to dwell in his son when and after his son became flesh. When his son was being obedient as the divine subject of a human nature, even to the extent of dying a death on a cross in which he would endure the wages of sin for all of humanity and by which he would take away the sin of the world. The end or the objective that God had for redemption was a creation in Christ in which God himself would be pleased to dwell and in which all creation would exist as a graced imitation of God, imitatio dei. Now, as if commenting on Romans 8.32, I told you before, I waited seven years for this book to come out of the Latin into the English. I wasn't about to learn how to read Latin so I could read the Latin version. So I waited for the English version. It finally came out last year. Bernard Lonergan wrote this. 
And it looks like a commentary to me on Romans 8.32, which was the heart of the heart of Romans, along with 8.31. He said, Augustine stated a twofold proposition. Either permit no evils to be, or draw good out of evils. To our way of thinking, perhaps the former seems the better choice. How many times have we said that? Why does this have to be? When is this going to end? How long, O Lord? Etc., etc., ad nauseum. That's me. Lonergan goes on to say, to our way of thinking, perhaps the former seems a better choice, but God preferred the latter. That is, to permit evils to occur and, bring, and to bring good out of them. Now, after living for more than 40 years, I will say to God, that's all right with me. And I did live. I've lived for 68 plus years, but I've only lived for 40 plus. So I'm not kidding. Once this permission, Lonergan again, once this permission of evil was granted, it remained only to draw good out of them. But how? How else, he says, through the meaning, the law, the mystery, the justice of the cross? That's where we're going. In the second paragraph, he said, Thus God did not spare his own son, inasmuch as he permitted the sins of the fallen angels, of Adam, of Judas, of the high priests, and of Pontius Pilate. He therefore handed over his son inasmuch as he did not shield him from his passion and death, but left him defenseless to his persecutors. He handed over his son on behalf of us all, inasmuch as he decided from all eternity through him to reconcile to himself all things. Colossians 1.20. According to the meaning, the law, the mystery, the justice of the cross. All true theology has to be a theologica crucis, a theology of the cross. The means of redemption, that was me, that last sentence. The means of redemption, there's the end or the objective, and then there's the means, the mediation. The means of redemption, given that God ordained that a world in which evil was permitted, would be the best of all possible situations. Imagine that. Imagine being in the agonia when everything seems to be against you and you never imagined that the sufferings you'd endure in this life would be so bizarre and so multiple. And for you to think, well, this is the best of all possible situations. It's kind of a strange way to think, but it's better than thinking in the way of the world's wisdom, which God has made to be nothing at all but foolishness. By the word of the cross. There's never a time when we don't hope. And so the means of redemption, given that God did ordain in as the only wise God, a world in which evil was permitted. The means begins with the incarnation of the son of the triune being that is called God. This triune being called God. The son who was eternally begotten in the unbegotten or by the unbegotten person of the triune God who is the father. Now here comes some new things, unfamiliar things, things that you can test As Job said, like a person tests the taste of food. Like a wine taster tastes wine before you ingest it. The new things are coming. 
The mediation or the means of redemption begins with the incarnation of the Son of God who was eternally begotten. We could say who was, is, and always will be eternally begotten by the unbegotten person of the triune God who is called the Father. The Father is called the Father because of his eternal act of begetting the Son. That's why he's called none other than the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's who God is. You say, someone says, who is God? I would say he is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. They would say, he's not my Lord. I would say, yes, he is. You just don't know it yet. You haven't shifted your allegiance that way yet. 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 Neither is any of us perfectly. Why call you me Lord, Lord, but don't do the things I say? Whoa, that must mean none of us has totally shifted our allegiance to the Lord. And so, the Son was eternally begotten by the unbegotten person of the triune God. The Father was not begotten. The Son was begotten eternally. But that doesn't mean that the Son was preceded by the Father or that even the Father has priority over the Son in the triune being called God. Because the begetting was eternal and it was of the same substance as the Father. And that's the mystery of the triune God. But the Father cannot be said to be begotten, for he is the begetter, so he is the Father. The Son cannot be said to be the begetter, but the begotten, so he is the only begotten Son. The Spirit was spirated or breathed eternally by the Father and the Son in a twofold act of God, eternal act of God. The Father and the Son together acting in perfect concert spirated or breathed the spirit in a twofold act. Their act was an active spiration or breathing of the spirit. The spirit's act was a passive spiration. So what we imitate, and I'm giving away a lot of this early, but we have to fan it out, work it out, pound it out, hammer it out. What we, how we are imitators of God is that we imitate by a graced, Imitation, the active spiration of the Holy Spirit by the Father and the Son. How do we do that? Well, we do that by loving with the Father and the Son's own love poured in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. We also participate in the passive spiration of the Spirit by assenting to and then coming to have perfect confidence in The fact that we are the objects of an unparalleled, unconditional, almost inconceivable kind of love. We come to believe in that love. We assent to it. And that's where the will of man comes in. Man can reject that love. Or a person can assent to it and accept that love. And that person becomes a lover. Until we assent to that unparalleled love, because God loves us first, always, we will never be true lovers. The objects of our love will simply be our own self-love with them in the way. And that love doesn't go the distance. Not in friendship. Not in marriage. Not in life. We'll get to this though. That's where we're headed. That's when I get to talk about doing and living theology. Because evil was permitted in the best of all possible plans. For God's plan is the best of all possible plans. The best of all possible plans does not mean evil isn't permitted. It means evil must be permitted to bring about the ultimate good. Hence the cross, the cross, the cross. It's called the theology of the cross. 
Theologica Crucis by Luther and other Reformed and Protestant theologians. It's called The Mystery of the Cross by Catholic theologians. It's called The Word of the Cross by Paul. I like that one even better. And the result of the word of the cross is a thing called instauration, another I word. Instauration. You might not even be able to see that. It's too high for me, you might say. I-N-S-T-A-U. There's the root word where we get the word stauros or cross. Instauration. Instauration, imago, imago dei, imitatio dei, they're all tied together. Instauration is the effect of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ on all of creation. It's the effect of it. And it begins with you and me. I was crucified with Christ. What does that mean? What does it mean? It means that my kind of love was crucified. My kind of living was crucified. My kind of preferences were crucified. My living in a curvature in ad se toward myself was crucified. Some conversion occurred. Real conversion is when we are taken from living into ourselves to living outside of ourselves in a graced imitation of God's self-giving love. Conversion isn't the change of one religion to another, or I've gone from Christianity to Judaism, or I've gone from Judaism to Christianity, or I've gone from Christianity to Islam. Those aren't conversions. Those are changes of people with their fickle minds. What would be best for me? Christianity would be best for me, I think. That's my good that's a good fit. No, I've been a Christian for there's too many demands on us. I think Judaism is a better fit for me. Wait a minute, there's even more demands. Not more demanding, but a lot more demands. Six hundred and thirteen of them. Well, maybe the religion of peace is a better fit for me, Islam. And then that's gone through, and maybe militant atheism is my best thing now. And now it's gotten to be that the philosophy that we're going toward in our culture outside of God is anything but Christianity. With some justification, because the Christianity that's been, the brands of it that have been presented to people are more like Augustinian, the majority of you go to hell, than God, all of you, will be restored in a glorious, supreme goodness. Now, so, what's old but new, again, is that the Son, eternally begotten of the Father, of the same substance or eternal essence of the Father, as the Nicene Creed rightly said, being not made, not made but begotten, He was not made, nor was he preceded by the Father. It wasn't that the Father existed and the Son didn't exist, so the Father decided to beget a Son. The the Father begot in an act that was as eternal as the Father's essence and existence. And the Son participated in that begetting by being begotten in an ineffable love. The same is true with the Holy Spirit being eternally spirated or breathed, for the Spirit is called breath, ha-ruach, ha-kodesh, says the Hebrew, the breath, the holy breath. And so the unmade son, we could call him, was made a human being. That's incarnation. That's a stunner. The unmade Divine son was made a human being, a man in becoming flesh. Remember then the divine processions for note takers. And some of you are serious note takers. There's DPs, divine processions. There's DMs. There are DMs, divine missions. What we're going to get into and sign on with is divine relations. And I'm giving a lot of credit to Robert M. Duran in his book on the Trinity and history, his three-volume book on, on the divine relations. 
Now, there are four divine relations, two divine processions, two divine missions. We know the divine mission is the mission of the Son, the mission of the Spirit. We know the divine processions, the begetting of the Son, and the spiration of the Spirit. The divine relations are paternity, the Father, the begetter, filiation, the Son who's begotten, active spiration by the Father and the Son breathing the Spirit, passive spiration, the Spirit being breathed eternally by the Father and the Son. These four divine relations are equivalent to, or let's say identical to, three persons. The Father is paternity of the Son. The Son, filiation, Jesus, is the Son. And the Spirit is the breath of the Father and the Son. The Word breathed to us, your words, I said your words in a participation with Christ's love and God's unconditional love. Your graced imitation of God will mean that your words too will be spirit and life. And you will minister elevating grace to your hearers. You will speak the truth in love. Ephesians 4.15 You will speak to the edification of the hearers by an elevating grace, a grace that elevates them right in their situation, not out of it necessarily, but in it. Now remember this. Remember, please. The divine processions, the Son, DPs, first, the Son proceeded from the Father by eternally begetting, by an eternal begetting. Second divine procession, the spirit by eternal spiration. Get used to that word, spiration. I can't improve on it. It means breathing from the Father and the Son. The divine processions do not, please notice this, because this will get you to understand the triune God like we haven't before, or we only began to. Remember this. The divine processions do not signify superiority or inferiority among the persons of the divine trinity. Rather, they described in a very imperfect analogy called the psychological analogy of the triune God, P-A-T-T-G for abbreviation. We'll be doing all this in the coming teachings, Lord willing. And if the crick don't rise. The divine processions do not signify either superiority, that is, of the Father over the Son, or the Father and the Son over the Spirit. So first, second, third members of the Trinity sounds like first, second, and third string. That's not what's being spoken of here. What we have in the triune God, by this imperfect analogy, are relations among three co-equal divine persons of uncreated triune being called God. Not called the universe. Called God. The active eternal begetting of the Son by the Father and the passive being begotten of the Son by the Father actually describes the person of the unbegotten begetter as the Father. What a better word for God the Father, the begetter of Jesus Christ. Now, the Father who is the begetter of Jesus Christ can be called our Father, according to Jesus Christ, in the famous prayer that's being prayed all over the world today. Our Father. Because in begetting Jesus Christ eternally, God did so with a view of bringing all humanity into his son to experience the goodness of a participation in eternal good, uncreated good. For in Christ, all will be made alive. Seems we've heard that somewhere before. And I'm not going to give you scripture references a lot. I'm expecting you to remember. 
so the father, the begetting by the father actually describes or identifies God, the father, as the person who is the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, as Ephesians 1.3 says, as 1 Peter 1.3 says, whom Jesus throughout the gospel of John especially refers to as my father. I love my father, he says in John 14.31. The son, as the word of God, does not speak on his own. He is spoken by the father. So what I hear from my father, that's what I speak. Because I didn't come here to speak, but to be spoken by my Father. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son, the word that God speaks. All this, don't worry. You see, if I don't hit you with stuff that you can't grasp immediately, I'm not a teacher. I'm a parrot. Don't ask me if I want a cracker. Better yet, don't call me a cracker. (laughs) Now, also the begotten one as the son of the father. The begotten should be called the son. And the spirated by the unbegotten father and the begotten son should be called the spirit or the spirit of God or the breath of God. Of the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit is also called proceeding love. He is love proceeding from the Father and the Son. You say, How can you call the Holy Spirit love? Well, God is love, isn't He? Or we could say, God is love, aren't they? The Holy Spirit is also called proceeding love of God the Father and the Son. He pours this love out into our own hearts. Romans 5, 5, so that we enter a graced imitation of God who is love in Ephesians 5, 1. Be imitators of God who is love and walk in love even as Jesus Christ loved us and gave himself for us a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God, Ephesians 5, 2. That's what's coming up. Now, in closing, the divine relations, DRs, are identical with the divine persons inasmuch as paternity or the begetting is the father. The begotten is the son. The actively and passively breathed is the spirit. Our participation in God's life and our graced imitation of God's love is when we imitate The active spiration of the Father and the Son, which is love, and the passive spiration of the Spirit, which is love. In other words, we first receive and assent to this unparalleled love. And then we love, not with our own love, but with that same love, we love God. We love all humanity. We love ourselves and we love others as we love ourselves. Husbands love their wives. Christians love one another. We love our enemies. Someone will say, well, I draw the line at my enemies. Of course you do, because that's your love. Your love draws that line. God's love blows that line all to hell and back. In fact, the Son of God became man in order for God to communicate his friendship to his enemies. And he's done this rather effectively. Kind of in a crude illustration, I remember two guys I knew, probably the toughest guys in school. They fought each other one day. The whole class followed them all over Bennington, pounding the hell out of each other. Now, you say, those two guys, if they had just met, maybe they would have been friends. But because they met and were competitive and beat the hell out of each other, when it was all over, they were better friends than they would have been had they never had this fight. It's just, that's a very crude illustration. Pardon me. I'm from Vermont, but worse, I was born in New York. Now, (sighs) can never go back. 
The divine relations are identical then with the divine persons, and in no way do they connote or denote an inferiority or superiority, a priority or lack of priority among the persons of the being called the triune God. You say, what, is that? what does Jesus mean when he says the Father is greater than I then? Because the Son, having become man, became obedient to the Father. He's not subordinate in terms of essence, but subordinate in terms of authority to complete a mission in which the will of God would be done. And the will of God happens to be the salvation of all humankind. Keeps coming up. So here's another thesis. The divine relations are identical with the divine persons, Father, Son, Spirit, and in no way denote or connote an inferiority or superiority, a priority or lack of priority among the persons of the being called the triune God. Here's the thesis. The triune God must be understood then as persons, as subjects in relationship of perfect love and the ineffable rapport of eternal equals, each possessing goodness by reason of essence or each and all being goodness as to its very essence, actively begetting or paternity, the father, passively being begotten or filiation, the son, Active and passive spiration, the spirit, are identical with the father, the begetter, the son, the begotten, and the spirit, the spirated. Again, these divine processions and these divine relations do not signify any lesser importance or higher priority among the persons of the Trinity. Thesis, the triune God is an ineffable fellowship of a plurality of eternal persons in unrestricted mutual love. And that they may be one as we are one is quite a prayer. Because when he's talking about they may be one as we may be one, he's talking about every human being who ever lived or will live. So this is so much the case that it can rightly be said that God is love. God is love. His self-gift, self-gift to humankind and to all that he created is both himself as the gift and the gift of his own love. Bringing each and all into this fellowship so that in the end, God is all in all as he is in each. Christ died for all, but he also died for each. To assent to this love to consent to this love, to accept or assent to this love, mediated as it is through the crucified and risen Son of God, then poured out in the hearts of the recipients, is to be converted. It is simply to be turned from curvaturae in ed se, curvature in within ourselves, To love with not our own love, but with God's love. It won't convert you from a curvature inside of yourself by loving with your own love. You don't get out of it that way. You only love with God's own unparalleled kind of love. And this is the kind of love that rescues the brokenhearted, the self-loathing, the self-hating people who hate themselves and become suicidal because they cannot imitate goodness of themselves and they try to find it triangularly in imitating some other person's life whom they deem to have it all together. This solves a lot of problems. Just the fact that we know that evil exists by divine permission is kind of, for me, call me a perverse person, but it's comforting. The divine processions of active and passive aspiration, this is what I'm going to develop, hopefully, I, I say I'm going to. Whenever I say I'm going to, I'm always thinking, Lord willing, Lord willing. They are ana- this active and passive aspiration are analogous to our reception of an unparalleled and unrestricted love. That's passive aspiration. Into our act of loving, that's active spiration. That's how we imitate God. We imitate the Father and the Son. Not with our own love, 
but with this unparalleled love of God. We begin to speak the truth in love and minister elevating grace to the hearers. That's Ephesians 4.15 and 4.29. So this is how, closing of closings, this ends Romans, but this also presents a bridge to our future contributions or overtures in theology. This is how we, the body of Christ, become one, even as the Father and the Son are one, in the ineffable, indescribable rapport and mutuality of self-giving love. God is faithful who has summoned us into the fellowship of his Son, says 1 Corinthians 1.9, which is our fellowship with the Father and the Son in 1 John 1.3, in which there is, and outside of which there is none, but inside of which there is the fullness of joy. 1 John 1, 3 and 4. It is a fellowship of love in which God is always the first to love. We love because he loved us first, which means we only love with the love that loved us first. God is always the first to love, and we love with God's love because he first loved us with this astonishing and unparalleled kind of love bestowing on us the very right to be called sons of God. Final thesis. This just begins what might end up being a hundred theses. The son who was eternally begotten of the father is also known as the word eternally spoken by the father and of the same essence and substance of the eternal father. So if you've seen me, you've seen my father, he said. But he became flesh because God who wills and loves and wills the good for those whom he loves, loves with unrestricted and unconditional love. And because in that love, he has willed the supreme good for those whom he loves. That's why the son who was unmade became made as flesh. He became flesh and was made a man, made man. Because the supreme good that can exist for his creatures would not be through a world in which there was no evil, but one in which evil was permitted. The solution for the problem of evil was the incarnation of the Son by which he became flesh, listen carefully, and the crucifixion of the Son by which he became sin. Shocker. So that we would be made the righteousness of God in him. Whoa. This belongs to the only wise God. That's why all this has been about the only wise God. Who's your God? Oh, yourself? Who's your God? Whoever he is, there's only one wise God, and he's the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he and our Lord are the spirator of the Holy Spirit, which is love. So this belongs to the only wise God whose wisdom is expressed and exhibited in the word of the cross. First Corinthians 118. And here's the kicker in that wisdom, which is Christ and him crucified. The wisdom that Christ and him crucified is the wisdom by which God renders the wisdom of this age, along with all of its sages to be nothing but foolishness, hence the offense of the cross. The realistic consequence of this wisdom and of this love is the restoration of all things. The summing up of all things in Christ, the participation of all creation in the divine nature, the graced imitation of God by all created rational creatures. This is our bridge then to an upcoming increment of theology which will involve a specific theologica crucis theology of the cross and it will involve a biblical doctrine of instauration the instauration by any other name call it any other name how about apokatastasios pantone the restoration of all things how about anakephaliosestai tapanta ento christo the summing up of all things in Christ, Ephesians 1.10, or apokatalaxai tapanta eis auton, the reconciliation of universal reconciliation in Colossians 1.20, or call it palingenesia, 
the regeneration, or as the complete Jewish Bible has it, the regenerated world, whatever you want to call it, and there are many words for it, it's still the instauration. The instauration by any other name is still the instauration because it is all rooted and grounded in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, the first and the fruit of the purpose and grace of the only wise God who is love. That's the bridge. We just crossed it. We're in different territory now. And it might be territory in which there'll be some new challenges. After all, Jesus brought them to the other side and they came to the place of the Gadarenes where there were certain beings that didn't like him. But that's not where we're going, is it? That's not where we're going, is it? We're not in the Agona, the clashing of two ages, are we? Yes, we are. But this truth will fortify us so that we will be hyper conquerors and reign in life through one Jesus Christ in a graced imitation of his love in a wonderful participation in his uncreated life. How's that for you? That's Sunday. Better have a coffee after this one. And we'll be continuing along these lines. So go in peace and head toward joy and live in hope and love one another.